0: He was sadistic, but he was intelligent, and he was friendly, and yet
1: evil. That was Melissa Holzman, a journalist who has written extensively about the now-deceased serial killer David Allen Gore and his accomplice, Fred Waterfield. The last of the pair's killings took place 35 years ago this month in Vero Beach. That story is coming up on Sun Crime State. I'm Tony Holt, crime reporter for the Daytona Beach News Journal. Welcome to Sun Crime State, a weekly podcast that takes an in-depth look at Florida's biggest crime stories of the past and present. In this episode... I'll discuss the death sentence recommendation made Wednesday by a St. John's County jury for convicted double murderer, James Colley, Jr. In August, 2015, Colley opened fire on four people inside his estranged wife's house. Two people, including his wife, were killed. In that segment, you'll hear from St. Augustine record crime and justice reporter, Jared Kiever. You'll also hear portions of some heart-wrenching trial testimony. Later, I'll discuss the life and crimes of serial killer David Allen Gore. He and his cousin, Fred Waterfield, grew up together in Indian River County, Florida. They also abducted and murdered women together. Gore was executed in 2012. Waterfield is serving a life sentence. My special guest for that segment will be legal affairs reporter for T.C. Palm and the Treasure Coast newspapers, Melissa Holzman, and former columnist for the Treasure Coast newspapers, Russ Lemon. Coming up, a death sentence for James Colley. I have one sister, one person who
2: had the same parents as me one person in the world who came from the exact same place as me. She was my person. The person that I could talk to about anything, and he took her from
1: me. That was Tammy Malone, the sister of Amanda Colley, who was gunned down inside her St. John's County home on August 27, 2015. Last week, 12 jurors unanimously agreed to recommend a death sentence for James Terry Colley, Jr., Amanda's estranged husband. James Colley also murdered Amanda's friend, Lindy Dobbins. The shooting rampage occurred inside Amanda's home in Mirabella, an upscale neighborhood located northwest of St. Augustine. Two others inside the house that morning Amanda's boyfriend, Lamar Dubberley, and her other friend, Rachel Hendricks, escaped the shooting. They ran to separate homes in the neighborhood and beckoned the first person they saw to call 911. Dubberley came upon a landscaping crew while Hendricks banged on a door a few houses down and convinced the homeowner to make the call. By the time St. John's County Sheriff's deputies arrived, they had found the lifeless bodies of Amanda Colley and Lindy Dobbins inside the house, along with a handgun with an empty magazine. James Colley was arrested several hours later in Wise County, Virginia. He was pulled over by a sheriff's captain who testified at trial earlier this month that he found firearms in the car and also observed blood on Collie's face. Jurors convicted Collie on July 18th. They returned to court five days later to start the penalty phase, which concluded Wednesday with a death recommendation. Collie who is convicted of two counts of first-degree murder and other charges, still awaits his formal sentencing, which is scheduled for October 2nd. During the guilt phase of the trial, the state had already presented many of the aggravating factors that are required for a jury to recommend a death sentence. Perhaps the most jarring evidence was the pair of 911 calls made by the slain victims. Neither was able to speak to the call taker because they had come face to face with the crazed gunman. Seconds after they called, they were fatally shot. Here is one of those calls, the one made by Amanda. I offer this warning. It contains some very disturbing audio, which may be difficult for sensitive listeners to hear.
0: over there. No. Not in there.
2: Please, stop. Put that down. Put it down.
1: Jared Keever, a crime and justice reporter for the St. Augustine Record, covered the trial. He told me that the 911 calls, coupled with the victim impact testimony, likely are what weighed most heavily on jurors' minds.
3: That was pretty much what the state presented was... You know, we've we've shown you that these crimes were that these murders were committed during the commission of a burglary. We know that he was violating a domestic violence injunction. We know all of those aggravating factors. We've proven those to you, and um, and then some some victims' family members and friends did read some some kind of impact what they call impact statements.
1: Those impact statements were very emotional. More on that later. Kiever also told me that defense attorneys argued hard to keep Kali off death row. They took a two-pronged approach to that.
3: They presented two things. You know, one was just um, testimony from from at least one sister and friends, other family members, cousins, co-workers, who, you know, just essentially testified that Mr. Kali was a good father and and a hard worker and and a... and a coworker they enjoyed working with. And the other portion of, of, the, of the what they call mitigating factors that the, the defense offered was kind of this ambient defense that, that had been hinted at earlier in the trial that perhaps Mr. Culley was, was not in his right mind when, when he killed Amanda and Lindy.
1: Kali allegedly took more than just Ambien in the hours before the murders. He apparently went on a cocaine and alcohol bender the night before, and it lasted well into the morning. He did this in spite of having to appear that same morning in a St. John's County courtroom for an injunction hearing. His estranged wife had accused him of violating an injunction she had previously filed against him. Furthermore, Colley decided around 4 a.m. that same morning to burglarize his wife's home. He wanted to do some investigating to see whether his suspicions were true about whether she was having an affair. Authorities said he did uncover that evidence, which further enraged him. Here is Kiever talking to me in more detail about Collie's actions during the 12 hours or so before the shootings. He had gone
3: out drinking the night before the murders and done some cocaine with a friend up in Orange Park, and that's why he was still awake at 4 o'clock in the morning when he when he broke into the house, basically in the middle of the night, and, and you know found the confirmation that, that she was having an affair. And um, the case the defense presented in that was that he he you know left left there he he spoke to a friend a a neighbor that that lived nearby and then he went home and knew that he had court he had to be in court the next morning for for violating the injunction previously and took took uh two half tablets of ambien is how they they always presented it and um got a few hours of sleep and then woke up and you know they said they Tried to convince the jury that that all of that, coupled with painkillers and, and antidepressants and other prescription drugs that he was on, created a you know kind of a, a mental state where he he wasn't he wasn't entirely in control of what he was doing.
1: During the penalty phase of the trial, the state called one particular witness to the stand in an attempt to poke holes into the defense's argument that Collie was in a severely altered mental state the morning of the shootings.
3: A strange thing, something I hadn't seen before in covering trials, the, the state also went ahead and called the county judge as a witness who who sends Mr. Caller to probation that day for violating the injunction, and the judge, you know, testified that he didn't seem like he was he was under the influence of any chemicals at the time that he appeared in court or anything like that. So that was a that was a kind of a strange twist that, that you often don't see another judge getting getting called to testify in a case, but.
1: After the injunction hearing on August 27, 2015, and after Amanda came home to find that her house had been ransacked, she called her friends. They came over to console her. Amanda also filed a report with the sheriff's office. A deputy left her house not long before Collie showed up in a homicidal rage. Prosecutors said Collie was there to kill Amanda's boyfriend, But after he heard the first couple shots that came from outside the rear sliding door, that boyfriend escaped through the garage. The others in the house retreated to the master bedroom. Rachel Hendricks got away after Collie shot Amanda and before he shot Lindy. Jurors, before recommending death, had to consider the following aggravating factors. The defendant had previously been convicted of a felony. He committed first-degree murder during a burglary. The attack was especially heinous, atrocious, and cruel. The attack was cold, calculated, premeditated, and committed without regard to its moral or legal consequences. And the attack was committed while a domestic violence injunction was in place. Those factors, in the end, outweighed any mitigating factors the defense offered. Among the witnesses who testified during the penalty phase of the trial last week were Amanda's sister and close friend, as well as Lindy's father and husband. Amanda was a mother of two. Lindy also was a mother of two, and she was a stepmother to her husband's teenage son. Lindy's husband, Chris Dobbins, gave some of the most emotional testimony during the entire trial. Dobbins and his wife were married for 12 years. His oldest son, Christopher, was close to his stepmother. The couple had two children of their own, a son and a daughter. They were 9 and 10 years old, respectively, when their mother was killed. Here is the story Dobbins told jurors while on the stand. Moments after the shooting, Dobbins Children's Elementary School, which is located in the same neighborhood was put on lockdown. Dobbins got the call from the school notifying him about it while he was in the middle of a business meeting. He texted and called his wife a few times, but there was no answer. He called her workplace, and a co-worker of hers told him that she had left work early that morning to help her friend, Amanda. Dobbins started to panic. He left his meeting and ran out to his car. He started driving home. He kept calling his wife. There was still no answer. Then he called his kid's school. It was still on lockdown. Dobbin used an app on his phone to search for his wife's cell phone, and it was inside Amanda's house. He started heading there. As he got closer to Amanda's street, he noticed it was flooded with deputies. He parked his car.
4: I walked down the street, saw a police tape blocking the road, told an officer standing by her by my wife's phone and her car were at the house at the end of the street. He asked for my name, and after a few minutes, I was introduced to Detective Samantha English, who shared with me the most horrific and unforgettable words I've ever heard. My wife, Wendy, and her friend, Amanda, were shot and killed in Amanda's home, and they were still searching for the defendant and fled the scene.
1: As he said those words, they were still searching for the defendant who fled the scene. Dobbins looked up from his prepared statement and stared directly at the defense table. Dobbins described how he had to call relatives to give them the news. Then he had to do the unthinkable, tell his children that their mother had been killed. He was driven by a female deputy to the school to pick up his son and daughter. He remained mostly silent while his children kept asking him questions. They knew something wasn't right. Why didn't mommy pick us up, they asked their father. Who is this lady with you? Why do we get to go home first? He sat them down and told them what happened. Mommy and Miss Amanda were killed. Dobbins continued with his testimony. By then... Several people were sobbing inside the courtroom.
4: When people experience a loss or tragic event, you hear them talk about getting used to their new normal. Well, here's a look into what our family's new normal is like since Lindy's death. Lindy's birthdays and Mother's Days are celebrated by releasing balloons at the Memorial Park in Marabella that was dedicated to Lindy and Amanda shortly after their deaths. Holidays are not celebrated with the same joy and enthusiasm, they weren't a Little League baseball games are attended with an empty blue chair. For Lindy to sit in and watch Patrick play. Ava's swim team t-shirts were designed with a Swimming for Lindy logo to remember Ava's mom. kids birthdays are celebrated with an empty seat and void that will never be filled lindy is missing every hockey football and baseball game that we attend with family free time we may have had before it's now spent in therapy sessions and support groups volunteering sporting events has been replaced by volunteering and domestic violence centers there are no more hugs kisses or laughs shared there's a sense of fear and insecurity that lingers, knowing that someone can act so aimlessly. On my way home, see you soon. I love you. Our words I'll never hear from Lindy again.
1: Collie remains jailed in St. Johns County as he awaits sentencing. If the judge upholds the recommendation, he will be transferred to death row at Florida State Prison in Rayford, joining 346 other death row inmates. Coming up, the story of serial killer David Allen Gore and his equally deviant cousin, Fred Waterfield. Hello.
0: didn't just harm and kill the victims that he was involved with. He really murdered a whole community when Zero Beach came to realize who they had amongst them and the evil in this man's
1: heart. It was July 26th, 1983. A 17-year-old girl burst through the door of a house and ran down the dirt driveway toward the main road. It was a long distance to the road. She was naked Her hands were still tied. She had been raped. Her attacker, David Alan Gore, chased after her. He had a gun in his hand. He fired a shot over her head in an effort to get her to stop, but she kept running. The ground was uneven. She tripped and fell. She tried to get up and keep running. The 29-year-old Gore, who also was naked, caught up to her. The girl, identified as Lynn Elliott, put up a fight. Gore wanted to drag her back into the house, but she was resisting too much. He gave in and decided to use the gun on her. He fired two shots into her head, killing her. He would later tell a reporter that it was a reflex. He shot her to get her to shut up. Gore was spotted by someone, a teenage boy in the neighborhood was riding his bicycle. He saw the naked girl running and the naked man chasing her. He heard the shots. Here is an audio recording of that boy telling police what he witnessed.
2: I heard a screaming, and this man was chasing this young girl or lady. Then I saw him dragging her back towards the house, and I heard two shots.
1: Law enforcement was called. A detective and a couple of deputies got there within minutes. There was a standoff, but Gore eventually surrendered. Lynn Elliott wasn't the only teenage girl he had abducted and raped that day. Reagan Martin, also 17, was still in the house. Due to the sheriff's office's quick response, her life was saved. That was how the long-awaited arrest of David Allen Gore came about. He would eventually confess to killing six females. He had help. His cousin, Fred Waterfield, also was arrested. After deputies picked him up at his auto shop, he knew he was in trouble. He cursed his cousin for fingering him. Waterfield, now 65 years old, is serving life in prison. Gore died by lethal injection six years ago. His execution took place nearly 29 years after his conviction. He was 58 years old. At the start of the segment, you heard from Melissa Holzman, a legal affairs reporter for T.C. Palm and the Treasure Coast newspapers, part of the USA Today network. Holzman has written extensively about the notorious killing cousins and has been interviewed for documentaries about them, which have aired in the U.S. and the U.K. Here she is telling me about the unique dynamic between the two cousins while they grew up together in Vero Beach, a quiet coastal town in Indian River County, located between Palm Bay to the north and Port St. Lucie to the south.
0: Now, you know, it was a really strange combination with these two. If these two had not been maternal cousins and perhaps had not had a chance to kind of feed on each other's obsessions, maybe their lives would have taken a different course, you know. But because they did spend a lot of time uh, growing up, um, it the, the story that their lawyers always told is that Waterfield was the more popular, outgoing of mm-hmm. the two. He was a year older than David Allen Gore, and he was a high school football player. Gore was more kind of shy and shy. So- Socially awkward, if you will. So Gore kind of set off of Waterfield's popularity, and uh, Gore always said he had two obsessions growing up, guns and women, and particularly women, and in kind of a dark, uh, perverted sort of ways. You know, in all the uh, looking back at this case and everything that they know about him now, they think that, you know, even as a young man, he was starting to have some uh, sexually deviant uh, behavior and some thoughts. And um, when these two got together, you know, they decided to start uh, targeting women, for the opportunity to rape and then eventually torture them.
1: Gore grew up in Indian River County to a religious but eccentric mother and a hardworking father. Stories about Gore's mother included how she would routinely read the Bible to her son, but she would do so wearing only a bra and underwear while her son sat on her lap. Gore's father managed an orange grove, He was well known and well respected around town. The area is known for its quiet beach and its vast agricultural area west of the Indian River. There were a lot of desolate spots in and around Vero Beach at the time, and Gore knew where they all were. He knew the acres and acres of orange groves as well as he knew the inside of his own home. In many ways, Vero Beach was like any small town. Everybody knew everybody. Gore graduated from Vero Beach High School in the same class as Phil Williams, who went on to become a deputy at the Indian River County Sheriff's Office. Williams, coincidentally, would be one of the deputies who responded to Gore's home after the murder of Lynn Elliott. Here is Williams talking to a BBC producer in a documentary about Gore.
5: David's father uh, became a citrus manager in in the citrus industry. At that point in time, there wasn't a whole lot to do between uh, growing up in Vero Beach. Your family either got involved in the citrus industry or got involved in some kind of service industry. So David was quite familiar with the citrus groves and and the, the swamps and the different areas of Vero Beach.
1: Williams said Gore knew all of the -the out-of-the-way places in and around Vero Beach.
5: During those days, we did a lot of hunting. David knew all the good hunting areas. He knew all the areas where uh, you could have a lot of undisturbed activities. Uh, In other words, there wasn't anybody going to catch you doing what you were doing. Uh, And David knew several isolated areas like that.
1: Gore and Williams also went to school with Fred Waterfield. He and Gore were first cousins, but they were more like brothers. In many ways, Gore and Waterfield were polar opposites. Gore was guarded, overweight, and often shy. Waterfield, by comparison, was tall, lean, outspoken, confident, and popular. Gore was suspected of harboring some jealousy for his cousin, but he looked up to him, too. Gore and Waterfield were similar in one significant way. They liked the thought of sexually abusing women. By the time they were in their late teens, Gore and Waterfield started carrying out some of their dark fantasies they chose someone close to them to experiment on. Gore's own younger sister wound up being what one clinical psychologist called a sacrificial lamb for the pair of perverts. Holzman told the BBC that Gore penned down his sister while Waterfield raped her. After that, they decided it was time to go outside the family. One day in June 1976, a 27-year-old Miami woman named Diane Smalley drove out of a gas station at Yeehaw Junction on State Road 60 when two of her tires on her Datsun got shot out. Gore and Waterfield were the culprits. She heard the pops but kept going until she realized her tires were flat. As soon as she pulled over, the cousins rolled up beside her and offered to help. She got out of her car and Waterfield pressed the muzzle of a gun against her ribs. She was getting into her captor's vehicle when she saw a pair of headlights coming toward her. That's when she decided to make her escape. She did get away, and a couple driving in the area found her running along the road. They picked her up and drove her to a safe place where she called police. Then one day, about a month later... The cousins wound up kidnapping and raping an acquaintance of Waterfield's, German-born Angela Homel, who was 20 years old at the time. Homel had hired Waterfield to help her with her car. She knew him because he had been friends with her ex-husband, and he seemed trustworthy. Homel was abducted and driven to an orange grove. Waterfield grabbed her. Gore raped her. Waterfield was armed with a gun. It was the first time Homel had ever seen one. Gore was armed with a knife. After the two men were done with her, they weren't sure what to do. Here is Homel describing her ordeal to the BBC crew.
2: The next thing I felt was something cold on my body. It was a knife. David said, okay, we'll cut her up and feed her to the alligators. And that's when Fred looked. Still was the gun in his hand. David was the knife. And David was totally confused. He acted like that part wasn't rehearsed or something.
1: In the end, Gore and Waterfield let her go. They tried to convince her to tell no one about what they had done to her. However, Homel did call law enforcement, and both Gore and Waterfield were questioned, but they managed to convince detectives that the sex was consensual. Homel would later advocate against the execution of Gore, but she did so because she thinks the death penalty is barbaric. Even still, she remains traumatized by what he and Waterfield had done to her, based on her interview with the BBC.
2: Yes, there was a reason God didn't let me die, that I didn't get killed. You know, I'm grateful for it. I still don't know the reason, but um, I'm thankful, and I thank God every day.
1: Gore and Waterfield decided after letting Hamel go, that they shouldn't take any more half measures. If they were going to continue to kidnap and rape victims, they needed to be sure they couldn't tell anyone. They decided every abduction had to end with murder. In most cases, Waterfield would identify the victims, help Gore abduct them, and take part in the rape. Gore would usually wind up killing them, and both men would work together to dispose the bodies, That was the basic M.O. of the killing cousins. Gore, however, would sometimes work solo, and he figured out a way to get women to feel safe around him. During the course of Gore's entry into adulthood, he showed an interest in law enforcement. He never became a full-fledged deputy sheriff, but he did become an auxiliary deputy, which meant he was given a badge. He knew how to use that badge, as a manipulative device. During the early 1980s, the Indian River community grew scared after it was learned that a mother and daughter had vanished. There were no signs of burglary at the home, and there were no indications they had made plans to leave town. It was clear to law enforcement that 48-year-old Siang Ling and 17-year-old Ying Ling were the victims of foul play. But no trace of them would be found for years. Not long after that came the disappearance of Judith K Daly. The 35-year-old mother had one day dropped off her kids at a beach in Vero that was known to be a kid-friendly beach. She decided to let them spend some time there while she drove to a more secluded area up the coast to enjoy the beach by herself. Later that day, Kay Daly went missing Her car appeared to have been disabled, as though someone had intentionally tinkered with it to prevent it from starting. Detectives were baffled, and the community was growing scared. Meanwhile, Auxiliary Deputy David Allen Gore continued patrolling the area looking for new victims. One day, he came upon 18-year-old Dana Sturgis driving down the road he decided to conduct a traffic stop. Gore flashed a badge and told Sturgis there had been a burglary in the neighborhood. Her car looked like the one that was used in the crime. He took her license and ordered her to follow him. He told her he was going to lead her to a location where someone was waiting, someone who could identify the car. Gore was leading her to one of his favorite isolated areas. Fortunately for her Gore got spooked at the sight of a couple of fishermen in the vicinity. he pulled over Sturgis pulled over he walked back to her car and told her that someone had just called in with a description of the actual car used in the burglary so she was free to go Sturgis told her parents what happened to her then she reported it to the sheriff's office. Gore was forced to resign as an auxiliary deputy after an internal affairs investigation was opened. After that incident, detectives started thinking maybe Gore was a suspect in the cases of the three women who had disappeared. Not long after his thwarted abduction, only a couple weeks later, Gore struck again. A woman, Marilyn Owens, showed up at a doctor's clinic in Vero Beach. Here is Holzman talking to me about what happened on that day.
0: Yeah, that was a really bizarre story. In fact, um, after that incident, he ended up doing prison time because of that uh, incident, and that really put him on the cop's radar. In a nutshell, what happened in that case is a woman had driven herself alone to a doctor's office, and she was inside um, with some type of an appointment. And while she was gone, Gore snuck into the back seat of his, her car, and from what I understand from the court records, he had a bottle of vodka, some handcuffs, a, a, a revolver, and he was naked. And she was sitting in the back seat, waiting for her to return, and apparently his plan was he was going to use his gun to kidnap her and you know, do who knows what tour. She saw some movement in the backseat of her car as she was approaching her car, and just lucky for her, there was an off-duty police officer in the lot of the doctor's office where they were, and she alerted him. He went over and saw that Gore was in the backseat. He called for backup, and so they ended up uh, confronting Gore, opening up the car and finding him there with the bottle of vodka, the handcuffs, the gun. It was pretty obvious that he was up to no good, and he was convicted, and it was when he came back, uh, he was on probation at the time that... The Lynn Elliott
1: situation happened. After he was arrested for the attempted kidnapping, detectives tried to pin the Ling and Daly cases to him, but the evidence wasn't there, at least not enough. Some hairs that appeared to match the victims were discovered in Gore's vehicle, but there were no bodies, and at that point, Gore wasn't cooperating. Detectives couldn't make an arrest. Daly's family, which was well-connected in Vero Beach, was furious. They even went so far as to call and harass the Gore family. Nothing could be shaken loose in the case. Gore was convicted of armed trespassing for the doctor's clinic incident and was sentenced to five years in prison. While behind bars, he was a model inmate who went to church and prayed regularly. He only served 15 months before being released on good behavior. So in March 1983, Gore was on the streets again. Four months after that, Gore and Waterfield, whom he reunited with after his arrest, struck again. They zeroed in on a pair of young female hitchhikers. Here again is Holzman summing up what the pair did.
0: It was 35 years ago, on July 26th, when these two girls, it was a summer day, they decided to hitchhike out to Wabasso Beach, and Gore and Waterfield had been trolling for victims, and they often tried to find teenagers on the highway or going out to the beach. Gore knew that his parents were gone, and they had access to his house. So they picked up these two girls hitchhiking and uh, took them to Gore's parents' home. And that's where uh, Lynn Elliott ended up being shot in the head. And Martin was found naked, tied up, and um, bound up in the attic.
1: All that happened in spite of the fact that deputies vowed to keep a close eye on Gore. They were convinced his wicked behavior would resume after he was released from prison. In fact, on the day of the Killing Cousins' last kidnapping, Detective Phil Redstone felt the urge to get out from behind his desk and go do some surveillance work. He had gore on the brain already. That's when an ominous call came over his radio. Here is Redstone telling that story to the BBC.
5: About halfway from the sheriff's office headquarters to the Gore house, I hear a call coming over the police radio, where a young man riding his bicycle home from school had observed something. I knew who I was looking for. I knew where to go.
1: The two girls, Lynn Elliott and Reagan Martin, were picked up by Gore and Waterfield in the latter's black pickup. It took a while for the girls to realize they were in danger. The first clue was when the glove compartment opened, exposing a handgun. Gore grabbed the gun and held it against Reagan's head. The girls still didn't fully understand the danger they were in. It was Waterfield who convinced them that Gore wasn't playing around. The look in his eyes also gave it away. Gore wound up handcuffing the two girls while Waterfield kept driving. By then, at least one of the girls started to cry. Waterfield actually saw something while driving down the road, something that made him nervous. One of
0: the quirks of this is that uh, Fred Weatherfield was not actually at the house when Lynn Elliott was killed, and the reason is because when they were in traffic driving the girls to Gore's parents' home, Waterfield's sister just happened to drive by them in traffic, and he saw her, and he got kind of spooked, and he was thinking that perhaps, um, you know, if something happened to these girls later, and his sister saw him with these girls, that wouldn't be good. So he was with Gore. They took him to the parents' home. They put him in a couple of bedrooms, and then Waterfield Waterfield told Gore he was going to go back to his repair shop and make sure that his sister knew that he was there, just to kind of throw off any suspicion. But then he was going to come back and, you know, continue with the rape and torture of these girls. But the way that things worked out, Lynn Elliott was able to make her escape once Waterfield had left. So Gore was there alone with both of the girls, and Waterfield never got back before the killing happened.
1: Gore left a back door open so that Waterfield could re-enter the house. The girls were led to a bedroom. Eventually, Gore separated them. Lynn's hands were tied behind her back with rope. He used the handcuffs on Reagan. He promised them both that if they cooperated, he would release them. Gore used a blade to cut off Lynn's bathing suit. He raped her. Then he went to the other room and started raping Reagan. That's when he heard a commotion coming from the other room. Here again is Detective Redstone describing what happened next based on Reagan's recollection to him.
5: She said that she knew that Lynn was trying to escape. She heard the front door slam and that's when she uh, saw David run out of her room and uh, Lynn was uh, running up that road the best she could, still being partially bound, David chasing her. And then he shot her about three-fourths of the way up the driveway to the main road. And that's what the young man saw on his bicycle was David chasing a girl and then hearing the gunshots.
1: That was when Redstone got the call. He was only minutes from the house. When he arrived, he was met by a couple deputies. Deputy Phil Williams, Gore's high school friend, also responded to the scene.
5: There were people behind every palm tree, so to speak, with a, uh, a gun trained on the house. I went to the, uh, to the door of the garage. And I began yelling in, David, it's Phil, come on out, come on out, thinking that the friendship would maybe still have some meaning to it.
1: Holzman still vividly remembers the details of that day. She spoke with Redstone she combed over the transcript of the interview gore had with detectives she also viewed the interview gore had with a clinical psychologist in 1992 during which he described what he did that day and what was going through his head here she is giving me more details about lynn elliott's murder and its aftermath
0: the retired detective, Phil Redstone, I remember him telling me that as soon as a call came over the radio that, you know, this boy had seen something, potentially a murder at that home, he immediately thought it was Gore, and he was already in the area, and they were able to get there while Reagan Martin was still alive. You know, and what Gore did, and what he said afterwards, as soon as he shot Lynn, he uh, took her body and put it in the trunk of his parents' car that was parked in the front of their house, and he ran in Back inside the house and immediately turned a police scanner on, which. Happened to have in the home there thinking that the gig was up that the cops were going to be coming after him and he knew that martin he moved martin up into the attic at that point and she was still tied up and then the police showed up at his house and it ended up being quite a standoff they used a bullhorn to talk with him to get him to come out of the house and at one point Reagan was able to free herself she ran to a window and screamed for help so they knew that there was a victim still left alive found lynn elliott in the trunk of the car so they knew that they were you know authorities knew they were dealing with a very serious situation
1: as for the body in the trunk it was williams who first discovered it according to what he told the bbc
5: i noticed blood dripping out of a uh, of of the uh, vehicle that had obviously just been pulled into the driveway we busted the trunk open And there was a teenage female shot and tied up in the trunk of the vehicle.
1: Williams would also tell the BBC that he would never forget the image of Lynn's body in that trunk or touching her shoulder and shaking her in the hopes that she would wake up. The image of Lynn Elliott's body also haunts Redstone. He knew Gore would commit such an act again. He wanted desperately to stop him before another girl wound up dead. He told Holzman in an interview in 2012 quote, "It was kind of a feeling that my worst fears were realized at that scene, and what I feared when he got out of prison was actually confronting us at that moment. After the standoff was over, and after deputies took Reagan Martin to a safe place, deputies obtained enough information to apprehend Fred Waterfield he was arrested at his workplace both men were charged with first-degree murder the authorities would get confessions of previous murders from both men and they got a lot of information from Gore he admitted to killing the three women who went missing in 1981 the Lings as well as Kay Daly additionally Gore confessed that he and his cousin picked up Orlando teenage runaways Barbara Ann Byer and Angelica Lavallee and killed them. Gore said the 14-year-old girls were picked up hitchhiking on Interstate 95 in Brevard County. Gore and Waterfield lured them into a van, and Waterfield sexually battered them while Gore drove to Vero Beach. That's where he shot them both in the head. He would later lead authorities to Byers' remains. Lavali's remains were never found. Gore also described to authorities how he and his cousin killed the Lings. Gore lured Ying Ling, the 17-year-old, into his truck after she stepped off a school bus near her home. He used his sheriff's deputy badge to convince her to come with him. He drove her home, where he later pulled a gun on her and her mother abducting them both. He raped both of them in an orange grove and then killed the mother. He summoned his cousin, who wound up raping the 17-year-old before telling Gore to get rid of her. In 1983, Gore led authorities to a citrus grove where a pair of 30-gallon drums were dug up. The remains of both women were found inside. More remains were found a year later at another citrus grove. Gore had dismembered their bodies. As for Kay Daly, Gore said he had stalked and kidnapped her. After disabling her car, and after she tried to start it, he pulled up in his truck and offered to help her. Again, he used his badge. He got her in his vehicle, at which time he pulled a gun on her and handcuffed her. He took her to an old trailer at another citrus grove where he raped and strangled her. Daly's body parts were later found in a garbage bag. Russ Lemon is a former columnist for the Treasure Coast newspapers. In 2010, he noticed a tribute to Lynn Elliott that was published in the paper by her mother, Jeannie.
6: Lynn Elliott's mother... Every year she put in a tribute to her daughter, and uh, her daughter was killed by Gore in uh, 1983. And this is 2010 still, and every July, uh, I think it was July 26th, the date that uh, her daughter was killed, she would put in a tribute to to Lynn Elliott and in 2010 i was just curious about this whole thing uh like i said i hadn't written anything about the divorce situation but i i contacted the mother Jeannie, and you know asked her to come in for an interview and, and we got together and and i wrote about it
1: russ reached out to her she wasn't interested in an interview at first but Russ continued communicating with her, and eventually the two struck up a friendship. Lemon wound up sitting behind her and her ex-husband, Carl, at David Allen Gore's execution in April 2012. Lemon said he will never forget how much of a weight seemed to be lifted off of them that day. A series of developments needed to happen before that execution took place. Lemon pointed out to me that Ginny's tribute was the first critical part of it. Then Lemon wrote a column, and his subsequent columns kept the story going. Then came a book published in early 2012 by former Washington Post reporter and famed author Pete Early, titled The Serial Killer Whisperer How One Man's Tragedy Helped Unlock the Deadliest Secrets of the world's most terrifying killers. One of the killers depicted in the book was David Alan Gore. Basically, the book is about a teenage boy who suffered a traumatic head injury during a jet ski accident. After the accident, he started showing some of the same psychiatric symptoms that serial killers regularly show, according to the author. As a result, the boy started writing letters to killers in prison, and Gore was one of them. Gore was the worst of them, based on the letters he wrote. He described his murders in detail. He described the noises the victims would make while his cousin raped them. He talked about how he would assure the women that he would let them go, only to kill them later. He talked about how one of his victims actually fought back and how that made him angry. Lemon read the book, and he was horrified by it. At the end of one of his columns, he wrote that he hoped Governor Rick Scott would read it too. Coincidentally, Scott showed up at the Treasure Coast newspaper's office for an interview with the editorial board. Keith
6: Early had written a book uh, about serial killers, and David Gore was one of the people that teachers, and when, you know, we went around the table, and we got to ask uh, Governor Scott questions, and, you know, my, my question had to do with uh, Gore, and this was, again, the first week of January of 2012, and he said he didn't know anything about it, but his assistant there, he told his assistant to make a note of that, and he would look into it, you know, when he got back to Tallahassee, and uh, lo and behold, it happened, He, he, I think it was later that January, there was some kind of signal from, I wrote about it, I think on January 22nd, 2012, that the headline said, Governor's move puts Gore closer to checkmate. So within three, a three-week period there, that's when it all came together.
1: Had Jeannie Elliott not published those annual tributes? Had Russ Lemon not been moved enough to reach out to her? Had he not been aware of the serial killer Whisperer? Had Rick Scott declined to participate in that editorial board interview gore might still be on death row today
6: pete early's book was was key in the the timing you know it was just a the circumstances all came together it was it was pretty remarkable when you look back on it you know I, i give governor scott a lot of credit this gore was on death row for you know decades and several governors had passed on, but when Governor Scott said he would look into it, he did look into it. And, you know, I'm not a big death penalty guy, but, you know, he's definitely one person that uh, deserves uh, the death penalty.
1: In the book, Gore even describes killing another victim, one that law enforcement never knew about. Because so many years have gone by, and because Gore was already on death row by this time, a criminal investigation was never opened. But it still raises one pertinent question. Gore is linked to six murder victims and stalked and or raped six more. But do we really know how many victims Gore killed or terrorized?
0: I mean, he even says it himself, that, you know, he had this urge to kill that would come over him, and yet he was very smart, he was very manipulative, he would plan his crimes, and he would, you know, he thought that he was smart enough to continue getting away with it. And honestly, to this day, we have no idea how many victims really fell prey to him, because there was a period of time um, before that that waterfield had moved away i think he'd gone up to new jersey where he was originally from and gore was on his own and the cops have always wondered i think it was like the late 70s for a period of time they really don't know how many victims that gore has really killed
1: we can be rest assured that no more victims of gore or waterfield will be added to the tally at this point Gore is dead, and Waterfield, who is serving a life sentence at the Hardy Correctional Institute in Bowling Green, isn't inclined to admit to anything. He's still too busy claiming his innocence, according to Holzman.
0: He's been fighting this all along. He's been, he's filed numerous appeals over the years. He's tried to wipe out his manslaughter conviction in the Elliott case, claiming that, you know, he left the house, he wasn't even there. And even his lawyer at the time tried to say that the reason that the jury found manslaughter is because it was more of a thing that he knew what was going to happen and he didn't do anything to stop it, more so than he was, you know, guilty of this crime. And I met his twin daughters at Gore's execution. They were outside the prison in the area where people were allowed to gather during during, uh, a lethal injection you know execution and to this day they claim that um gore uh, wrongly accused their father of being involved in this they still claim that waterfield was you know just a patsy and all of this
1: as for reagan martin she has never spoken publicly about her ordeal she is now married and is living in georgia lemon told me he exchanged emails with her but she declined to be interviewed She did not attend Gore's execution. Lemon, as I mentioned before, was in attendance. He sat directly behind Carl and Jeannie Elliott. He told me it was surreal seeing Gore lying on that gurney. But it was satisfying seeing Lynn Elliott's parents witness the justice they had been waiting on for nearly 29 years. If
6: you've ever had the opportunity to interview parents of a victim uh like like said edward carl and jeannie elliott you realize what a lasting impact that murder had on them i mean even to this day you know there's an emptiness you can tell there's an emptiness inside them it just felt like justice you know what i mean you know justice prevailed in this case it it took 29 years but um it, it was good to see him. I was so happy towards them to, to, you know, after all they went through, they were so at ease, at peace, more at peace than they were before.
1: Carl Elliott, Lynn's father, spoke to the BBC about witnessing his daughter's killer's execution. This is what he said.
5: While I was watching him die, I said to myself I condemn your soul to hell and I kept saying that in my mind and I hope that is where
1: it went thank you for listening tune in next week for our 50th episode when I will discuss the 2004 Deltona massacre that resulted in six people being bludgeoned and four people being convicted of murder including two who were sentenced to death among my special guests for that episode will be former Volusia County Sheriff Ben Johnson and Daytona Beach News Journal justice reporter Frank Fernandez. Join us next week for that one.
6: You
3: can find Tony on Twitter at Tony Crime Writer. Or email him at tony.holt at news-jrnl.com. Be sure to rate us on iTunes. Sutton Crime State is recorded by Tony Holt and produced by Chris Bridges for the Daytona Beach News Journal.